Most people have good intentions, but few people practice intentionality. Greetings from Dallas, Texas, for another edition of Insights on Intentionality with Coach K. On this podcast, we conduct interviews, provide insights, and answer inquiries on the intentional way. I'm joined by two guests today, Ron Greer and Dean Pyle. Ron, Dean, welcome to today's podcast. Well, good, good to be here, Coach. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having us. We've been doing some ministry to men in the Metroplex and looking forward to having a chance for you to get to know these guys. We've had a chance to do ministry together and now having a chance to get caught up a little bit, uh, see what's going on in their lives and to get reconnected uh, with ministry endeavors. But on the podcast today, uh, these guys have some unique God stories as well as some unique experiences that I think will benefit you and your endeavors, whether it be your spiritual journey or on your own leadership levels of ministering to men. Ron, tell us uh, the Cliff Notes version of your God story, one of the most unique ones I've ever been uh, around. <laughs> well, I've, I was born in a place called Denmark, Tennessee, <laughs> and spent half my life in Denmark, well, half the younger life in Denmark, and then moved to Jackson, big city. Uh, Western Tennessee. Uh, Western Tennessee, uh, during early 1960s, late 50s, pretty segregated area. Uh, my mother decided I wanted a better life. She moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and we followed her there. Uh, so experienced uh, quite a bit of um, racial sort of bigotry and, and separation and those sort of things early on in my life, but really didn't affect me much until I moved to Wisconsin and uh, then developed an attitude about uh, white people that was fostered in, this, in the sort of environment of the middle 60s, whole black awareness movement. Uh, lived in a neighborhood where the Black Panthers set up their first headquarters and also Malcolm X established a second uh, mosque uh, for the Nation of Islam. So a lot of uh, mentorship uh, under the guise of uh, black awareness and black nationalist uh, attitude. So developed that attitude, uh, kind of got more in-depth as I grew older, and ended up going into the Marine Corps to get out of the ghetto. Uh, while in the Marine Corps, I tried to kill the chief warrant officer who touched me, a white officer, because he touched me. Uh, ended up facing 32 years and only got uh, 18 months out of the 32 years. But I was sent as a Marine to an Army prison in Leavenworth because I didn't, the prosecutor didn't get the time he wanted, so he wanted to make my life hard. So I ended up in uh, Fort Leavenworth, and my anger became uh, deeper and more intense. Uh, and I, I was a military prison compared to the uh, standard prisons of that day. Well, I'll put it this way. The, the biggest request they had in Leavenworth was to be transferred to a civilian prison. <laughs> <laughs> military prison was a bit, bit more intense than the civilian prison and a bit more stringent. Uh, and the racial divides, uh, again, at the end of Vietnam was, were pretty, pretty, pretty sharp. Uh, so I, my, uh, but being in prison uh, to me was the ultimate of white people, uh, I call them swines at the time, having control of my life. And my anger became deeper and more intense, and I, I completely went over to my new adopted name of Balandimu Hudari uh, because I wanted to renounce all that white Christian uh, association with my name and anything else. Uh, but did that for a while and eventually a Bill Glass crusade came through. Uh, Former player for the Cleveland Browns. I was, yeah, I was traveling the circuit doing there. some prison chaplaincies. Yes, yes. Uh, him, the only person I really knew anything about was Roger Staubach. He bought Roger Staubach, some black pitcher and a karate master. I had no clue who any of them were. I didn't hear the whole program because they kept talking about Jesus. And decided, I decided to leave. Uh, but the Lord used that, that few hours there to start 
sort of uh, percolating in my head, uh, how horrible my life was, uh, the anger, how deep it had sunken, how horrible my life had situation was at the time. And I ended up, uh, after thinking for a while, and on my mock crying and eventually said, Lord, look, if you're real, get my head straight. Uh, I fell asleep. I got up and got something to eat and came back. Uh, all the heat was gone. The stress was gone. The, uh, that sort of boiling anger was gone. And I figured anybody could do that could have anything I got. And I told him, you can have anything I got, my very last breath if you want it, as long as you keep my head straight keep doing this for me. So that was my beginning of my, my journey with the Lord. I uh, went to the chaplain the next day, got a Bible, and just dev in and started reading and reading and reading. Kind of screwed up some, on some theology, but, <laughs> but I was on fire for Jesus. I uh, went to my Muslim brothers and sort of withdrew, renounced my name, recaptured my Christian name, and was on fire for Jesus. And he has continued to work and do amazing things in my life and put me in places where I never could imagine. One of the things that intrigues me about your God story at this juncture is you said you pretty much, in your obviously spiritual uh, awareness and then a mm -hmm. spiritual awakening, mm -hmm. you also took all of those things that had filled your mind and your yes. heart yes. with hatred. And said, listen, let's set all those aside yes. and let's go to what source is your foundation for life. Well, again, it, I, it, in my mind, it's one of those things that God did for me. And so in my mind, if all that I thought and believed and you know, assumed in life led me to that horrible place, then now that I've come to, come to this point and realized that God was, <laughs> that changed my mind and you know, I'm reading his word, all right, now everything is up for question. Because I couldn't trust anything in my background and my raising anything at that point. So God threw me through, through this process over the next few years of reexamining every single thing in my, my entire life. Uh, and part of it, one of those major things was my view of the race and differences and so forth, which he completely kind of obliterated. Dean Powell has also joined us on the podcast today. Ron, we're going to pick up your story and see where God was taking you beyond just to the point of salvation to them being used in his service. Dean, and we've had a chance to serve together as well in North Carolina. Now I'm back in the uh, Lone Star State with you. Uh, give us a little bit of your profile and your background. Well, I was, I was raised, you know, it's funny that I'm listening to Ron's story, and, and our story was almost completely opposite of that. My mom, uh, we're 100% Greek, uh, raised kind of in the Greek ghetto, in New York and uh, her best friend growing up was black and um, she then moves to Dallas uh, where you know she had kind of seen segregation fade quite a bit and um, as she moved back into Dallas she was faced head-on uh, with that situation and uh, it was amazing you know we we lived in a very white neighborhood um, and I, I think my mom actually regretted that uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, but she owned a laundromat that was literally right across the street from the original uh, Dallas Cowboy practice field. And so uh, most of the clientele in there were the Dallas Cowboys, um, my, my childhood heroes, obviously. This is uh, back during the Tom Landry era? This is Tom Landry, Roger Stahlback, Danny White, you know, Preston Pearson, Drew Pearson. Uh, these are back in the heyday of the Cowboys. Um, 
But the other clientele in, in that laundromat was predominantly people from low-income areas. And uh, I, find, I found myself being up there and, and working, you know, cleaning up here and there, trying to make quarters at a time. And, uh, but I would, I would hang out with predominantly the black kids that came in. And uh, I would find myself going back to uh, their neighborhoods in Stoltz Road and Hamilton Park. And, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing to me to kind of live the other side of what Ron lived, um, where my mom encouraged me to, to go to those neighborhoods. Um, even to the fact that at one point I had uh, a neighbor who was extremely bigoted uh, call my mom and tell her, hey, you don't need to let Dean go over there and play. And my mom's response was, uh, I'll never forget watching her face in anger, uh, describe to her that, that I was safer in those black neighborhoods than I was in my own white neighborhood. And uh, it was so true. I mean, I felt like that was family. Um, you know, and, and grew up in, in a Christian home there. Uh, went to Baylor and, and experienced um, just a difference in discipleship. Uh, a very prominently known speaker uh, throughout the country was there at Baylor at the time and discipled many of us. And, uh, man, the change was, was absolutely um, staggering in my life. And uh, I, I, ser- I began to serve the church at, at that point um, and, and continued on down that road. Ron, let's continue with your story about transitioning from salvation uh, to service for God. So mm-hmm. God's working through your life to give you a whole new grid to work from and to serve mm-hmm. Him. Uh, pick up your story at that stage. Well, I got back home and uh, had intended on going back and being on fire for Jesus and teaching kids at the church and doing Sunday school. And then I got back and everybody in my home church knew I had been in prison and why I was in prison. And they wasn't too keen on that idea. <laughs> Putting me with high school kids, uh, but uh, the, uh, given the way God works, uh, we had I had been praying for I'd gotten married and now praying for a better job, uh, better circumstances. Didn't want to raise kids in Milwaukee, and God uh, miraculously opened this door in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, to become a firefighter. And a number of miraculous things taking place, but I became a firefighter, and firefighting gave me the opportunity to experience things that that I had only dreamed about. And then uh, another one of those strange things, some guy kept calling our house because he heard me talking, heard about me talking to somebody before about me being in prison. And he was doing prison ministry at a local prison and wanted me to come and talk to the guys out there. So I went one Tuesday night just to kind of stop him from calling my house. My wife had threatened me. So I went one Tuesday night, uh, didn't finish up. And one of the guys got me to promise to come back next Tuesday to finish up. Uh, and so I went back to next Tuesday and I was there for the next three and a half years. Uh, that began, uh, God did a work in my life and, and kind of drug me into prison ministry for 23 years. What was uh, it like to be on the other side of the bars? It, it was initially my, my, I told my mother, uh, and the other folks that I would never go back to prison unless it was in a box. <laughs> Dead. Uh, but God took me back and the second time I went to speak there to the guys there, uh, we were doing uh, some uh, a scripture passage, and the weirdest thing was just just half of the verse stuck in my mind for days. Uh, but Jesus says, "When you come to yourself, teach your brother." And I couldn't figure out why that that verse kept sticking in my head, and why there's just that one part. And I would remember praying and asking God, "What in the world is this? And why do you keep bothering me with this?" 
And that's when I got this whole sense that, okay, every man behind the prison wall is your brother. Uh, God had given me a unique memory of all my experiences there and the things I went through and made it clear that my responsibility now was go and teach the guys behind the wall so that they would know that that's not the end of their lives, but just the beginning of their lives. So that began the next 23 years of speaking in prisons around Wisconsin, around the country. Uh, we also, through the process of doing that, ended up doing what they call aftercare. Um, another thing God sort of, again, drug us into, a guy one day standing on the porch talking with another minister friend of mine. A guy got kicked out of a house across the street and you get about the yelling and screaming and cussing. And we thought it's a Christian thing to do is go get plastic bag, go ahead and pick his stuff up and take him where he needs to go. Well, he had just gotten into town from southern Illinois the night before, didn't know a soul. And my friend left. And here I was sitting with this guy on my front porch starting to rain. And I had to go pick my wife up from, from, uh, from work and didn't have room for him in the car. So I left him in the house. His name was Tracy. Tracy lived with us for about three and a half months. Uh, Tracy was number one of 20, I think, six ex-prisoners to live with us. Uh, it was God's way of showing us how to pour into the lives of the men, have to make a transition. And in my mind, I could talk to guys all day, but what does it look like to be a Christian father, Christian husband? You know, what's a Christian man look like in the community? So it's one of my first sort of um, experience with discipling guys, uh, except I didn't know it was discipling at the time. <laughs> I, my job was to help them make the transition and primarily just going through the process that, I, that God took me through early on. Uh, so that became the second part of our ministry, doing aftercare ministry. Uh, but it, it, as a result of you know, sort of allowing God to take me to different places, I've had a chance to, uh, Chuck Coast and I became friends through Prison Fellowship for, well, I don't know, almost 30 until he died. Um, he got a chance to, I testified before Congress. I've been to the White House. I've gotten to know a number of the uh, Christian leaders around the country. Uh, just things that God has done. And travel all over, speaking and doing a number of things. But uh, primarily, my, I think the thing most of all was uh, discipling guys and preaching a gospel in places where I never would have been able to have access and places where other people would never be able to go. Tremendous platforms are opening up for you at that particular stage. Well, discipleship includes worship, and specifically in men's lives, uh, they should be lead worshipers in their families and obviously in other contexts where they find themselves. Dean, you were in the pioneer days of the worship movement uh, there at Baylor. Uh, coming out of Baylor uh, came a nationwide movement, particularly amongst single adults. Uh, tell our listening audience about the intentionality that you saw as you were being invited into that particular era of time where we begin to see worship uh, really begin to uh, express itself uniquely. Mm. Uh, at, that, at that first uh, kind of juncture, uh, it, was, it was one of the first conferences that kind of grew out of that. Uh, I'll never forget um, a man by the name of John Piper uh, at that point got up and was sharing some, some messages uh, out, of, out of this book called Desiring God. And uh, man, just pivotal, changed really the way I looked at theology, changed the way I looked at, at mankind, uh, honestly. And uh, ultimately, later on, Piper would write uh, in a book uh, called Let the Nations Be Glad. He used a phrase that, that completely resonated with everything that I had been taught and learned as a worship leader. And that was that missions exist because worship does not. 
And when I grabbed hold of that, I, I began to really see um, the the intentionality of the mission was not just for the prisoner, for me. It, it wasn't just for uh, the the people that lived in a foreign land. It was the mission of mankind that that missions is existing because worship is not. And everywhere I looked around, um, there there were great worshipers. The only problem was they were worshipers of themselves mm. rather than worshipers of the one true God. And the intentionality that I learned, um, man, early in my 20s, uh, it, it completely altered the way I would see the church, the way I would see the mission field, the way that I would, I would see people in general. Um, and it, it takes me to that point, you know, uh, Ron and I were talking earlier about, about what racism looks like. And the, the, the fear for me is that we don't get one another, forget that our skin is different colors, but that we haven't identified, man, that's another human being. And uh, it's it's when when we recognize that you know God looks at us and He tells us in Second Chronicles seven fourteen if my people who are called by my name he he doesn't recognize a skin color and he doesn't recognize an idolatry and he doesn't recognize anything other than his people it's it's the perfection of God stepping into the human race saying, man, if you will identify with me, I can unite you in a way that no government, no politics, no anything can do like I can. We had a recent guest on the podcast, uh, A.J. Fobbs, and uh, we've been talking about building bridges over troubled waters. We were together with he and another African-American brother in a recent uh, church platform ministry. And uh, I was sharing with the congregation on that particular day that skin pigmentation oftentimes will uh, uh, precede heart transformation. And we believe in heart transformation. That's the essence of discipleship. That's the essence of the heart of a worshiper. But we we look to the skin pigmentation lens. Now you saw that growing up, uh, Ron. And then as you got into prison ministry, God also provided you some platforms uh, coming out of Promise Keepers era, Mm -hmm. which trumpeted the racial reconciliation. Tell us about some of those experiences there wasn't always an openness to people to receive that particular message. Well, again, I, it's it, it's part of probably the, the most difficult thing uh, first starting off in ministry was just that uh, I was a black guy coming into a prison or coming into a, 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 a gathering of volunteers to talk about uh, the ministering to guys in prison and. On one hand, there are people who thought that you know somehow there was some prestige in my part. Uh, but for me personally, given what God had taken me through, it, it was a negative thing. Uh, because I, I wasn't the black guy who had this prison experience. I was, I was the guy who had this God experience. Uh, so there are a number, number of places early on, uh, people didn't hear the message. They just heard the messenger. Uh, they, they would marvel at you know, your amazing testimony. Instead of hearing the, the amazing power of God working through even our, our vision of what people were and who God was, right? So the idea of trying to get people to focus on uh, the, the character of God 
and then the, the nature of, of human beings as opposed to color was probably the most difficult thing. Uh, and I, I don't think, I, I guess I honestly say, I, I still don't think that most people are there. There are places where I, I go, they, they're, they, they're there, but uh, it, not, not, not a lot of places. Uh, there are places I go now, uh, I may be the only black guy in a three-county area, uh, like out in Montana, or if I'm going to up northern Wisconsin. It, it, everybody in town knows there's a black guy here. Uh, but the thing is, the people who invited me didn't invite a black guy. They invited Ron Greer, who had somehow touched their lives somewhere else before. So it's, it's, and it's getting people to get to a point where they're past that. And that is, is, is looking and viewing the world and people and even the circumstances we're in through the lens of, of, of the word of God as opposed to seeing it through my own experiential lenses. Uh, it's allowing Christ to, to open my eyes completely and not less partially. I think one of the problems that, uh, that I take with even my other black uh, pastors and, and, and Christians is it's that they've been indoctrinated to see the world uh, from a perspective of race as opposed to seeing the world from the perspective of what God says it is and who God says I am. And, and going from there. And, it's, it, I, and I also think it's probably one of Satan's most effective tools in keeping us from, from being fully uh, experiencing what God has for us, uh, keeping us from fully seeing God's work as the way he wants to work, and it also keeps us from fully recognizing who God really is. You know, our identity is, is our race. For instance, one of, the, one of the terms I reject is that you're a black Christian. No, I'm Christian. I just happen to be black. Uh, you're a member of a black church. No, I'm a member of a church, a broad body of people worldwide. This just happened to be a black congregation because it's in a black area. Uh, so, so another one of the issues I've ran into over the years and why I've been dis- disinvited from certain ministerial alliances and that sort of thing, because, again, I refuse to do the whole racial thing, period. Uh, and if we don't get there, and my, my task in life, part of my task, is getting people there. It's like, you know, the skin color is, like the old songs say, it's just skin deep. The color's just skin deep. Well, I was an EMT for 19 years, and the one thing I've never been taught in EMT training was that how to treat a white man as opposed to a black man. There's no such thing. Inside, we're all the same. Just more confirmation with God, with God's creation. And a wedge of the evil one that seems to be driven in the modern evangelical church is, yes. let's take these cultural influences and then come and set those in, and then we'll just kind of let the uh, biblical community respond to those, yes. Yes. versus... Let's park the cultural influences at the door yes. and walk in here and understand that with a biblical foundation yes. that produces a biblical community, which then goes out there and has an impact on, on the culture at yes. large. Yes, absolutely. Dean, that took place, again, picking back up on this uh, pioneering era of the worship movement when single adults uh, began to rally around uh, there at the campus of Baylor and then across the country, some nationally known individuals that you had a chance to be a part of in those early days. Uh, how have you seen worship... Uh, transition along. A lot of us grew up, I uh, was in a pastor's home, we, we sang songs about God, we didn't sing songs to God. To me that was music that took place in church versus worship before the almighty God of the universe. Explain to us about the difference between music and worship, philosophically and biblically, and then also as you've had a chance to be a part of the worship movement, what that's done to the people of God. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's huge. Um... Looking back, there there was a definition that that that, um, that speaker gave, uh, and and the definition was worship is our response 
both individually and corporately, to God for who He is and what He's done, expressed in and by the things that we say and the way that we live. And man, I'll never forget that night. Um, that night was at a Bible study at Baylor, and thousand of us gathered in a room. And you know the the effect of God honing something so sharp in your mind and in your heart. I, I wrote that down, and I literally had to let that marinate for years. And to see at that point what God was doing and, and to realize that that we had, we had come to a place where for the first time ever in those early years of Hosanna Music and Don Moen and some of those guys doing tapes back in the day, they weren't even CDs, um, we, we, we found a new realm and, and where we had always, as you said, sang to each other about our God, uh, what I would call horizontal worship, it's encouraging. It tells us how great is our God. Uh, it's an encouragement to each of our hearts. All of a sudden, um, we we came in to, um, to a more personal vertical worship, which became the I love you, Lords. And if you think back to some of those early songs, um, they, were, they were very simple, but they were very directed. And, and to watch as God used that, uh, I, I believe God used that marinade for quite a while. I believe one of the strongest things that, that God used in the, in the church, especially in this modern worship era, uh, God with us. It was a musical that went through the names of God. Uh, it was, it was um, new with a traditional feel. And because of that, it ended up in a lot of the First Baptist churches, a lot of the prominent churches. And from there... Um, gave an aspect of what worship could be as we gathered together. And I, I began to, to watch as so many things shifted at that point um, around the country. Um, things, that, things that the Word of God has long since been telling us to do and to be about. Um, but to watch even something as simple as raising hands. And, and, you know, it, 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 we, we're talking about being men and we're talking about being intentional. And there's nothing about a man at a football game that's unintentional when a, when a player takes a piece of pigskin and runs across a line, every man in the, in the place grabs his hand and throws it in the air with a big yes. And at that point, I'm, I'm, perplexed with the fact that we as worshipers can't make ourselves vulnerable to the point of raising our hands in worship. And I've watched as that's changed over the years and as God's grown that. Um, you know, for me, the strongest moment came when my now 20-year-old daughter, Demi, was about 10 months old. She started walking really early. And I'll never forget that very first time she walked into our living room in St. Louis and she saw me and she raised up her hands and it was the most worshipful picture that that she was reaching for her daddy. And, and we as men, most of us with father wounds, 
uh, find it hard to find that posture acceptable. And yet, at the same time, man, put put Dak Prescott behind the line and let him run around the end and make the touchdown and extend the football, and I've got no problem putting my hands in the air. You know, and uh, total abandonment. It is absolutely. I'll yell things that I wouldn't even say at the house. You know, but but the reality is, man, that that's the same unfettered heart that God wants us to have in worship. We were talking at lunch today about um, being all in, and Ron, you were picking up uh, with another guest who joined us, a, a local. A pastor here in the Dallas Metroplex area about, though you're not uh, directly a sports fan, you have allegiance to the Green Bay Packers because you're Wisconsin heritage, <laughs> but you talk about your observations. <laughs> you see this same total abandonment. Yes. I may have to leave now. <laughs> That's right. We've got, we got a cowboy and a Packer in the house here. And we've got uh, an example where even your observations, you saw guys becoming all in yes. and you're long and you said that happened on the church campus, in the local communities, for men to be all in for God. Yes, yes. Uh, Develop that uh, thought for the listeners. Well, again, I I know a couple guys who are with the Cowboy organization, and one is a numbers guy, and he talks about, uh, about, I think the average game game attendance is like 70,000. 90 some percent of those men, uh, 90 some percent are men, excuse me, Uh, and out of that 90 some percent, the average guy spends about 200 bucks in the stadium of food, drinks, and that sort of thing every game. They spend somewhere between 60 and some odd $70, $80 for parking every game. And the average fan spends about 1500 bucks a year on fan gear. And I can talk to a thousand guys who are Cowboy fans or any other fan. And they'll talk about our defense. We're going to beat the Patriots next week. And you know, our, our, our defense, our uh, running game is this. And our, me, and my. It's all these this personal pronouns about the team, and they've never stepped foot on the on the on the on the, on the, green, on the, on the field. Never will. Never met a, a player from the team, and Jerry Jones gives them nothing, <laughs> but they come and spend all their time and money, and they they have this buy-in. There's a certain value there, and they identify with it. And the thing I challenge pastors to do is that here's the deal: What does Jerry have that you don't have? You know, what does he know that you don't know? Jerry gives them nothing, and no matter what the team does or what they do, what they buy, it's temporary. It's, it, it's, it disappears. You, on the other hand, you have something eternal to offer them. The question is, how do you get to the point and what you need to do to create that kind of value where guys buy all in to both being a part of a, a body of believers but also all in where they give their all to pouring into another man and being a part of God's, God's team. Uh, it's And it's primarily my, my focus now to help you help pastors and help men's leaders to think through that and develop a strategy for doing that because it's not that men aren't committed and men don't get engaged because every single sports team could tell you that's not true our deal is just helping churches and helping men understand what it means and how the value of being all in uh, for, for, for Christ all in for the mission he's called us to and even all in into a particular congregation it's, and if we don't do that, uh, nothing else is going to stop the, the, the decline of this culture and the destruction of the nation. It, you, you cannot stop it. The partially surrendered life represents that lukewarm spirit yes. that Revelation refers to. And God is looking for us to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. Yes. I heard at a Promise Keepers conference one time, Dean, as we segue back into worship and that conversation to be continued, Joseph Garlington said this, 
God has created within us an innate desire to worship, ideally Him. Ron just described how worship takes place on Saturdays in college football stadiums, albeit one of the main cathedrals uh, here in the state of Texas as I go down to the college station on Saturday evening. Hopefully my Clemson Tigers will be victorious. But then also on Sundays uh, throughout the NFL circuit, I, I visited your uh, Green Bay Packers uh, home, the Lambeau Field, uh, there in Wisconsin recently, and now uh, here within Texas Stadium's uh, uh, backyard. But, but God has created within each of us an innate desire to worship. I agree with Garlington, ideally Him. Expound on that a little bit, Dean, as you as a lead worshiper uh, desire to see others get all in with connecting with God vertically. Well, the, the evidence of that is as, as we look at, at worship, man, we are, we are prone to worship first and foremost that image in the mirror. Yes. And whatever that image in the mirror needs or wants or has to have, man, we are willing to move heaven and earth in order to accomplish that. And uh, the reality is uh, uh, to become an all-in worshiper, it's, it's more the process of taking our eyes off of the mirror. Uh, you know, not, not to bash my favorite Michael Jackson, but, but to stop looking in the mirror and to realize, man, we're, we're to look to the one whose image we're made in. Man, if you want a reflection that we need to be looking at, man, it needs to be the face of Jesus. And I'm not talking about the white uh, silver plate behind his head up in the Baptist church right there with Jesus praying at the rock, picture of Jesus. So, 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 so the blonde-haired surfer dude that, in California that, doesn't fit the profile? No, it doesn't, because if it did, he would have said, for sure, for sure, not barely, barely, I say unto you. Um but we're we're so I, I think Ron hit it on the head that that we're so programmed to look for not just skin color, but to look for economic stature, yes. to look for need based things in our lives, and man, in doing so, all we do is feed the monster. Yes, and and so many times, man, we want to point to something else. We, we want to point to some other individual or some other entity or some other race and create that monster. And the reality is the monster's in us. <laughs> and in doing everything that we do that way, we're, we're feeding the own, the, our own monster. And, and God's heart has always been, man, re- remove your eyes from yourself and fix your eyes on the author and the perfecter of your faith. Because in doing so, we, we begin to see not, not only him differently as the complete need maker and meter of our lives, but, but we begin to look at others differently. I begin to see how God created Ron Greer. I, I can see um, how, how God created Jeff Kasiah. And I, I, can, I can take in parts of both of those characteristics and go, man, God, you're huge. Mm-hmm. You, you do some amazing things mm-hmm. and, and you haven't created any of us to look alike. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, somewhere in our messed up mindset, look alike took on the role of equality. Yes. And that, that is not the truth. Mm-hmm. Man, we are equal. We, we don't look the same. You know, um, 
uh, I can't even remember who said it from Promise Keepers, talking about husbands and wives. We we are not equals. We we are the same. We are equal. Sorry, we are not same. We are equals. Um, sameness doesn't equate to equality. Um, where you know we we understand that we're not. We don't look alike. We don't sound alike. We don't talk alike. Um, and and if again I'm feeding my own monster, then I realize I I'm I'm what matters most. And if I begin to to fix my eyes on the author and the perfecter, then I realize that that number one, the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all men. I I don't know if y'all know this, but that wasn't written to Americans. <laughs> And and we are we are some arrogant fools that that believe that we're the ones sending out missionaries. And I got news for you: there's more missionaries from India and Africa coming here than ever before. And, and that's the beauty of the gospel: that it wasn't written for Americans. It includes us, but it wasn't written just for us. Good stuff. Both of you guys have been intentional with me on this particular road trip to the Lone Star State. Uh, though Ron is not a sports fan necessarily himself, <laughs> nope. he was a respecter of my DNA and took me to the Cowboys training facility where I really had a chance to enjoy uh, a walk down through their Hall of Fame. Uh, I was telling you, 1974, our family took a cross-country uh, vacation from North Carolina to California, Interstate 40, uh, for you listeners, uh, we'll travel you all across from the East Coast to the West Coast. And on our second night in Amarillo, Texas, up at the Panhandle, uh, Bob Lilly, playing for Tom Landry back in the 70s, had made an investment in some little, you know, uh, lower-budget hotels. The Coach Light Inn was uh, one such uh, hotel. So we stayed there in uh, the summer of 1974. A big tornado came through, and uh, we, we survived that. But when I saw number 74 yesterday and thought about what Tom Landry said about him, he was the guy that was all in for the Cowboys, and obviously what we're speaking to in this situation. Then we just finished up a Barnabas luncheon. Those of you who's heard us talk about that before, that's been the highlight of our ministry day. I love to break bread with guys and have a chance to have these informal conversations and uh, talk about how are things in our journey, you know, how are things at work, how are things in our walk, and it's always refreshing, rewarding, renewing times together. But now Dean, he was intentional today. Uh, our fourth pastor who joined us uh, for this Barnabas lunch in the group outing had said, uh, hey coach, you want to go to Freddy's Steak Burgers? Uh, you want to go to McAllister's Deli? No, no, no. If I'm on the road, I can get those things back in Charlotte. So my good friend Dean Pyle, we served together on the church staff together for several years. Uh, he knew my palate. And uh, tell us about uh, where you took us today, Dean. Well, we had to go to a Texas original and uh, and hit babes up because uh, we, we just don't talk about that with the wives later. Um, no, honey, dinner's great. I'm just, I'm full from lunch. Um, but we uh, we ate at babes and and it was right. It was right in Jeff's wheelhouse. That's yeah. for sure. So we have the Cracker Barrels, the franchises that gives you some good country cooking, uh, southern cooking for those of us from that part of the country. But uh, even the green beans today had a special flavor to them. The cream corn was very, very unique. Uh, the country fried chicken. So it's good to be in a local establishment that really gets it right. And I appreciate the intentionality of both of those guys that even providing for me uh, a chance to enjoy some things. Well, as you round third base and head home, uh, some listeners may be discouraged, 
you know, just kind of tuning in today and saying, hey, what, what's going on around the country? Who are some fellows that may speak into my mind? I think that, you know, just like you guys are so jovial, we are personalities, uh, you, you bring joy to a man who can get so focused in life. Uh, both of you know my wife, fun-loving life, the party man, she takes care of my balloons. And you guys do that when I'm around you. So let's talk about some fun things so that guys can see we're just real men that obviously believe in this real God and uh, want to worship Him together and disciple others in His name. So, a little blitzkrieg of questions here. Favorite classic car? Mm. 1986 Cowboys Edition Corvette. <laughs> All right. Blue and silver, silver on top, blue on bottom, still curvy. Still wish I had one. <laughs> How about you, Ron? 57 Thunderbird. Okay. It's a red and white. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> These guys have got the colors down pat. Favorite adventure movie of all time? Mm, it would have to be Indiana Jones, uh, Last Crusade. Okay. Raiders of the Lost Ark for me. I'll be on the front end of that. I'm going to say you okay. stole that from me. It's Raiders of the Lost Ark. It looks like you, knows you, get that. Te- you get Temple of Doom. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Temple of Doom. Okay, I got we'll, we'll take We'll take the whole trilogy now. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Dean, uh, an ultimate sporting venue you'd like to experience in the future? Man, I've I've hit I've hit all of my my bucket list items. Bucket list items. Wow. Yeah. Okay, okay. I'm thankful to say. All I'm right. thankful to say. Let's go. So Ron, you're not a sports fan, nope. but with your hobbies and interests, what's yeah. something out there you'd like to be able to participate in? Uh, I'm a scuba diver. And okay. Believe it or not, <clears throat> I'm black and a scuba diver. But anyway, <laughs> Can you, you do it, that? You find it hard to believe, but I am. <laughs> I was a rescue diver for the fire department for 18 years. And became a, a uh, recreational diver about 10 years ago. But my ultimate goal is to dive the Fiji Islands and off the coast of Australia. Um, except I don't like sharks, so I'm not sure we'll get to that one. But, <laughs> but those are two places I want to go. Uh, Fiji Island, dive the Fiji Islands and dive Australia. You know, God has wired women to be relationally natural in their interactions with others. Guys have to have some pry bars to kind of get conversations yes, going yes. oftentimes. And I found just with this little simple questionnaire, mm-hmm. you know, to find out adventure movies, classic cars, bucket list items, mm-hmm. that then springboards conversations mm-hmm. and guys begin to see and value the importance of going deeper with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the spiritual context, you've talked about your call to salvation, your call to serving God. Uh, let's leave some words of wisdom for the uh, men's discipleship leader out there that maybe is, uh, his, his soul is dry, Good. you know, and he could uh, pick up on some things that you would suggest. Uh, the pastor was with us today, gave us a couple of books sure. that he's been reading recently. It's been uh, really striking his fancy. Uh, any volume that you mm-hmm. guys are going through recently or in recent years is like, hey, that really uh, was a nice compliment to the scriptures? Yeah, sure. I, I, not necessarily the a book I'm reading, uh, but people might find this weird. <laughs> But I, I've been spending the last couple of months uh, digging through and going uh, like a fine-tooth comb through the book of Ezekiel. Uh, I, I don't know what other people, how they click their clock. But uh, it, it's... it's let's be honest, that's a weird book. <laughs> I mean, if you're, if you're reading through that for the first time, you think this is somebody's drug yes. issue. <laughs> yeah, you might get that impression. <laughs> but again, it, it's... Uh, so Ezekiel for me has been... Um, uh, very convicting. It has also been very, um, uh, very instructive. Uh, but what it also has done for me, again, it's a very unique way of 
making me understand, come to realize again, anew, the, the sovereignty and the, the power of God, and that nothing really depends on me. And so, and it comes at a good time because in the ministry we're in, it can be kind of, kind of uh, disappointing at times and irritating because things aren't moving. Uh, and what it, what is reminding me of, the movement and the things that take place has nothing to do with you. It's what God is doing, his timing. You have the privilege of being used by him in this process. So what that allows me to do is I don't look at results and outcomes. I look at, okay, Lord, am I in the place you need me to be today uh, so that you might work in someone's life? And it also tells me not to look for results uh, of, 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 and judge by how well I've done by what, what happens over here. Uh, I judge by how, judge how well I've done is by how well I can closely follow what God has called me to do uh, that day. Dean, how about you? A, a, a tune or a book that you're reading? What, what's been impacting you recently? Well, I mean, I would, you know, what what did God tell Ezekiel to do with the word? Eat it. Take all of it. To put honey <laughs> on it and eat it. And it's man, I, you know, if if I'm going to be honest, we we get caught up in the latest book, song, yes. you know, and we become Christian consumers. Mm-hmm. And the reality is we are meant to be consumed and consumed by a holy fire. Mm-hmm. And um, because he is a holy a holy fire that consumes us, I, I mean, I, I just have to say, man, if you're dry and you're, you're withered and you're mm-hmm. weary, we, we have all been there. Mm-hmm. Yes. Soak in the word. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And, and I know that's difficult for us as men. We, we would rather see a movie. <laughs> We want a picture. We want. We are very visual. We know that. And but man, when you can dive into that which doesn't change, which is the same yesterday, today, and forever, you realize the longevity of who God is, and that's what His Word does for us. It takes us to the very real essence of who God is, and man, it's it's hard sometimes. I mean, there are some things you read and. Again, Ezekiel's one of those for me. Man, it starts off, and I'm like, I'm not sure I understand this. But the the beauty is, um, is what God does in in the story of who He is. And uh, when we read through the Old Testament, um, which I know is your favorite, Jeff Kasai, um, we we come to to the end of Malachi, and we've been given a picture of who this Jesus is to be. And when he steps onto the scene in John as the Word, and the Word became flesh and he dwelt among us, man, it it takes on a different role. And so, man, I I know, guys, trust me, if you need to, put a Bible in the bathroom. We we like to sit and read there, and it's quiet. Um, but, But do what you have to do to get alone where you can read through the scripture because um, there's so much there. Yes. If you need a new translation, go get a different translation. Uh, if you need something that makes it easier, find a help. Uh, there are tons of aid out yes. there, yes. and uh, we we need to take advantage of it. Uh, but again, sometimes we look for the latest thing, and and in reality, we ought to look for the oldest thing. Great words of wisdom. Well, I've been in the Lone Star State, but I haven't found myself lonely because Ecclesiastes 4 has been lived out with both of these guys, uh, 
friends in the ministry, friends in life. We've had a lot of shared experiences together. And uh, I so much appreciate uh, that passage in Ecclesiastes 4. Two are better than one, but a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And part of my goal in being here was connecting the dots. We were intentional with you guys as we move on to the next uh, crusade. Uh, you guys will have a chance to continually build on bridges. You met a couple years ago. We've had uh, another chance to do some kingdom connections this time as well. And for you listeners, uh, thanks for joining us again today for another edition of Insights on Intentionality. We'll look forward to future occasions of sharing additional insights with you. And be reminded of Ephesians 5.16, make the most of every opportunity. And remember this, most people have good intentions, but few people practice intentionality. This is Coach K. We'll catch you next time on Insights on Intentionality.